All right, so now is the time for the word. Um, on the screens beside me, uh, we're going to be looking at a, at a text of scripture from the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is an Old Testament story, and it's the next one up in our series, Christ in the Old Testament, looking at stories from scripture in the Old Testament and to really help us to better see the nature and the character of God throughout the entire Bible. Um, and it reads like this. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Elimelech. His, wife was named, his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, and the other, Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malin and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who can become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Heavenly Father, as we uh, pause at this moment to hear from your word, God, I pray that you would clear out our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would stir us. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see exactly what it is that you're trying to tell us in this moment. Would you be with us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Good morning, Renaissance. It's 11.30. Good morning, Renaissance. All right, that's better, that's better. Uh, let's actually uh, go back to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I'm just thankful, uh, God, that you've brought everyone here for a unique purpose. Uh, God, you don't know where uh, people were, what people were feeling this morning. Uh, God, people have come with different uh, moods, uh, different experiences and circumstances. And so, God, I pray, God, that the message of your steadfast love, God, reaches uh, them, God, that you ultimately speak to them in their unique way, God, and ultimately, God, let these words, my words, hide behind you and hide behind the cross and let you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Uh, so, uh, good morning. As I said, I'm, 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 my name is Lawrence. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. And 
What many of you may not know is that I'm a junior. My dad's name is Lawrence Ajah Sr. You may see the photo up there. We may or may not look alike. You can tell me. Uh, <laughs> um, but in my family, names were very, very important. My parents took names very seriously. Now, there's some obvious reasons. I had my name, which is kind of simple, Lawrence, but my sisters had these Nigerian-inspired names, Basi, Emem, Enewan. And, and so for them, they all had meaning. So one, that's why it was important. But two, it wasn't as novel, and I think all parents could relate to this. They just didn't want their kids out in these streets embarrassing them, right? And so they wanted us to be well aware and cognizant of our name and the fact that we were part of a family. Uh, one of the most popular warning lines in our house next to child, you will not kill me, is child, you will not embarrass me, right? <laughs> and embarrass is not embarrass, it's embarrass, right? You know, Niger translate for y'all, right? Um, now, I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. It was the first day of school, and I'm headed to kindergarten, y'all. And uh, our parents, it's Sunday night, our parents line us up, like almost like this interrogation line. I have my three sisters, and they call me up first. And I'm coming up there, and my mom, if you heard any stories about my mom, she always starts serious conversations the same way. She says, Lawrence, child, right? Lawrence, child, right? So she starts the same way. She's like, Lawrence, child. Tomorrow is your first day of school. You're going there to learn and not to play. Because if I hear about any teacher calling this house because of you, you'll see your father, right? You know what I mean? And you'll see your father and Niger translate. It's like, it's a rap for you. It's absolute rap. You know? so my dad, it's a rap. So my dad's kind of, he's a smooth brother. So he's kind of sitting down. And I'm thinking he's going to follow up with this you will embarrass me theme. But he actually takes another turn. He comes to me. He says, Coco which is the short for my Nigerian name, Kokoete. He said, Koko, what is your name? And I'm, I'm kind of confused. I'm like, uh, Lawrence? <laughs> and he's just like, okay, when you go to that school, your name is Lawrence. It is not Larry. It is not Law. Do not let anybody tell you anything other than your name. Uh, and I'm like, oh, oh, okay. And he's just like, do you hear me? I'm like, yes, Dad. He's like, do you hear me? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, okay, Dad, cool, right? But what threw me off is that my name was simple. My name is Lawrence, right? But I didn't have my Nigerian sponsor name for my, like my sisters. And what was interesting is that they had the similar speech, but it was a little bit different. And my parents came to them. They're like, if those teachers can pronounce Corey Sokolowski, then they can pronounce Inewan Aja, right? <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, cool, Mom. That, that rationale is cool. And so <laughs> I feel like all parents have this prophetic gift. Whatever they warn you of, it's about to go down. So I find myself fall of 89 in Martin Luther King Elementary School in Piscataway, New Jersey. Jersey in the house. Any Jersey people? Like three, but it's okay. We are here, cloud of witnesses, right? So uh, I'm heading there, and it is attendance. So I'm preparing myself because I'm an A, I just, so I'm ready to, for her to go. And it's Miss Spencer, and she's saying, good morning, class. I'm going to do roll, so when I call your name, raise your hand and just let you know you're here. And so comes up, and I'm preparing myself, and she's just like, okay, Lawrence, I'll I, I be a J, I, I, I. So she's already messing up my name. I put my hands up. I said, I'm here. She's just like, oh, welcome, Lawrence. Uh, do you mind if I call you Larry? Man, family, <laughs> I don't know what came over me. It was like the spirit of Lawrence Aja Sr. came over me, and I literally went verbatim. I was just like, no, my name is Lawrence Aja. My dad said that no one could call me anything other than my name. <laughs> <laughs> she turns beet red, 
right? And if my skin could, it would as well. <laughs> but being named after my father was something I, I, I was proud of, but I didn't grow more proud until I got older and I got to see my father in moments of crisis. Uh, there was a, a period in our time, um, a period of few months where both of my uncles had passed away. These are both my, my mother's brothers, and they were the remaining relatives, remaining siblings of hers. And I never saw grief like I saw at that time. My mom was, if anybody knows my mom, she is the comedian. She is the yeah, joy and laughter in our house. When, where my mom is is where we are. And I remember coming back home, and goodness, like I, she was looking off in the corner, and she would sometimes wail and cry and look off in the corner, but then she was mostly silent. She did not eat. She did not talk. She did not engage with anyone. And over time, that sadness uh, transitioned from sadness to anger and uh, bitterness towards God and at times unintentionally towards my father and all of us. But not for one moment. I, I can't even imagine over that, those first few months, my mom didn't show my father any affection. But my dad, not for one moment, moment wavered in his love for her, wavered in his, his, his ability to engage with her. Led by my father every single day, we sat by her. We prayed with her. We fed her. And there was one moment when I came home and my mom was so sad that my father and I had to carry my mother up the stairs and help to bathe her. That was the first time that I really understood what real love is. And I saw the power of steadfast love to restore God's light to people in their darkest hour. Now, while I have sobering gratitude uh, to have uh, my father's and share my father's name and to be proud to have that, I have tempered gratitude because I recognize that not everybody has the type of relationship with their father where they would extremely feel proud to share their legacy, especially in view of Father's Day. But the good news for us, particularly those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, is that we all share the same legacy of a heavenly father whose steadfast love made our redemption possible. Now, let me define steadfast love. I'm, I'm not talking about the type of love that, you know, there's an absence of real circumstances where you're faced with it, you wouldn't reasonably go away. I'm talking about circumstances where you would be faced with it, you would reasonably walk away. But the type of steadfast love that I'm talking about is unwavering, it's resolute, in the face of circumstances which reasonable people would walk away. Um, what act, this word, steadfast love, is actually drawn from uh, scripture today where, uh, where Naomi says kindness, showing kindness to Ruth and Orpah as God had. And that word is a Hebrew word called hesed. And hesed is such a special word that they don't have one word that could easily translate its meaning. It's sometimes used as steadfast love, sometimes used as mercy, faithfulness, and kindness. And that's because hesed is not so much a word as it is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And he is the full embodiment of what Esed is. Now, as much as I was in awe of my father's faith, I recognized I was in awe because his steadfast love for my mom was so rare. And what's interesting about that is that if we are called and if we are believers in Christ, that's the standard that God holds for us, for our love for one another. We see in Ephesians 2, the scripture says, walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Now, as clear as that may seem in our head mentally, 
This is something that in our time, in our culture, we wrestle with extremely. Now, we live in a time where sacrificial love and steadfast love isn't valued as much as it should be. We live in a time, we live in the cancel culture. Cancel culture, every single week, the prevailing question is who, what celebrity, what person in my life, who should I cut off? Because for some reason, they are not adding comfort or happiness to my life. Every year at about December, I know look, to look at Instagram and see the new post about ways and why you should cut off people who are dead weight, cut off people who are discomforting in your life. And so you have this, this, this dynamic happening in terms of our culture. But there's also a beautiful thing happening in our culture, which we have to celebrate, especially given what we shared about the deacons. We're in an age of self-care. Self-care movement has been a big movement over the past five to ten years where this generation, more than any other generation before, is investing in self-care practices, disciplines around their well-being, from mental health to physical health and diet and spiritual health. And so according to Pew Research, no other generation before in terms of pure dollars and time compared to Gen X's and Gen Y's has invested in their, well -care, in their well-being the way our generation has. And that's something that we have to applaud. That's something that's extremely important. But there's a complication. The complication is that when you also live in this time, it also complicates what it means to hold on to people. When you cut off people every three weeks in the name of self-care, that they are not giving me positive energy, that I need to protect my peace. And now there's a beautiful tension. There's a tension where you could either be on the extreme of neglecting people, right, and not giving steadfast love, but we also see the tension, particularly now, where you hold on to people and it's abuse. And so you struggle. How do we navigate this tension of what it means to actually have steadfast love when the answer is not so clear in our day-to-day -day lives? Now, I am not speaking from Mount Olympus about this. This is something that I'm living right now. Many of you may not know, a few months ago, um, I lost uh, someone. Everybody says he's like a brother. He was my brother uh, to me, uh, my cousin. And he passed away at the age of 35, unexpectedly from cardiac arrest. And I can't tell you how much I felt cared for and felt the love of community and people in my life, many of them in this room, who showed up for me and sat in my room while I didn't say anything. I just cried, and they sat there. So I appreciate that. But also, I can't help but still feel the knife in my chest from people who I've cared for in their deepest times of need who didn't even give me a phone call over that time. Now, we live in grace. All great relationships run on grace, and so I understand. Because me, I've dropped the ball for people when they really needed me. But if you're talking about asking the question consistently whether or not I should hold on to a relationship or not, I'm right in it. And what's interesting and what's scary is that uh, I hold this stinging mixture of pain, this faithless pit in my stomach that realizes that the type of healing, the amount of healing and patience I'm going to need from people may far outpace and far outstrip the amount of patience and steadfast love they're willing to give me. And so I consistently worry about that. And so whether I am pouring over the scriptures daily or I'm in my counselor's couch weekly, I recognize even 20 years from now, I may have nights like I had on Thursday where my tears still take me to sleep. And I know so many people could relate to that in this room, how difficult that is, how challenging that is. But what actually challenges me the most, especially as we talk about care in this community, all of us know of some person, someone who years removed from trauma hasn't quite healed yet, yet people haven't quite held on to them because they were too difficult to deal with.
Now, we could all sit in this tension and be the type of people who fight this fear, this gnawing fear that people are going to leave us in our deepest times of need. And so what I do is I try to make sure that I'm on everyone's everything, trying to indebt people and trying to indebt God to me so that in my times of need, they're not going to leave me alone. But that is so, so, so dangerous. That will burn you out. And I can imagine other people in this room understand what it feels like to relate to God transactionally. Like if I'm not faithful, he's not going to be faithful. And so I ask you this question for any of you guys, when the last time you messed up, what was your conception about how God thought about that? How did you think when you dropped the ball, how did you think the people around you thought about you? To my professional relationship cutters, I just ask you to think about if God related to you the way you related to other people, would you still feel the same way? Now, unintentionally, this culture, this perspective trickles into our relationship with God, and it makes it difficult for all of us to conceive of what steadfast love of God being directed towards us really means. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been in the True and Better series, Finding Christ in the Old Testament, and we've been unpacking how the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, displays God's great love for us through the person of Jesus Christ. And now the book of Ruth is one of the most powerful, it's one of my favorite books, one of the most powerful examples of God's steadfast love for us. And it gives us a picture that undoes the fears that our culture places on us about what a relationship with God is really like. Now, you may have heard about Ruth in a Christian blog or a relationship book where they tell you, wait for your Boaz. <laughs> We're not talking about that today. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint some of y'all. Y'all like, ah, oh, the Lord, right? <laughs> but sometimes the misconception is that Scripture is this, is this almost this, this, this biblical Where's Waldo game where the character of Christ is self-contained into one central figure. But Christ himself challenges this notion in Luke 24, 27, when he says, all of Scripture is about me. So the beautiful thing about Scripture is that you will see the picture, the image, the heart, the character of God manifested across different actions, different people, and different attributes of other people in Scripture. Now, a few minutes ago, Jordan read our Scripture from Ruth. And a quick overview of the book of Ruth, uh, we have Naomi and Elimelech who are married, and they leave Bethlehem during a famine. And along with them came their sons, Malon and Kilion, and they headed to Moab. Quick note. If you are someone looking for baby names, there's some underutilized one, Malian, Kilian, Elimelech. Uh, so you may want to holler at that uh, so there's no conflict. <laughs> um, but we see tragedy immediately. Elimelech dies. So now Naomi is a widow. And then, uh, Ru- and then uh, Malon and Kilian then marry Moabite women, and then they die a few, year- few years later. So you have this picture of devastation and three widows. Now, Naomi gets wind that God has come back to, for his people, and famine has ended in Bethlehem. And so she's ready to turn back to God, to repent and come back home. However, she wants to love Ruth and Orpah, so she tells them, you guys stay home. You guys stay here in Moab. I'm going to go home. It's going to be more bitter for me than for you. Stay here. However, Orpah, she hears that, she leaves. Ruth, however, decides to cling and to hold on to Naomi. Now, quick overview near the end, uh, Ruth, they go, Ruth is sacrificially loving Naomi, uh, she is spotted by a distant relative, Boaz, in a the field, they get married, they have a kid, and that kid is the grandfather of David, right? 
We could just stop right there, right? <laughs> uh, but we won't. The truth is, Ruth is a beautiful book, and it is worthy of an entire series, which we probably will do um, later on. However, I want everybody here to give a razor-like focus today to the first chapter of Ruth, where we see the picture of Naomi's and Ruth's relationship. And what we find here in Ruth and Naomi's relationship is that that relationship gives us a beautiful picture about the steadfast love of God. And the good news about that steadfast love is that it is covenantal, it is costly, and it is redemptive. Again, that steadfast love is covenantal, it's costly, and it's redemptive. And through Ruth's relationship with Naomi, we get a picture of Christ's steadfast love for us. The character of steadfast love is covenantal. Now, it is important for us to understand context here for chapter 1 to fully understand how radical and beautiful Ruth's love is for Naomi. Now, when Naomi and Elimelech leave Bethlehem, this is time, this is in the time of the judges. The time of the judges kind of marks a period when Jesus was sending judges to deliver the people of Israel, but their character was marked by deep unfaithfulness. That's nothing new. And so they're continually being unfaithful. But what you may not know from Scripture is that famine was God's divine punishment for their unfaithfulness. So you even see at the end of Judges, in the book before, they did what was right in thine own eyes. And ultimately, God was punishing them for their unfaithfulness. And so the irony of all of this is that you have Naomi and Elimelech leaving Bethlehem during this time. However, if you don't understand, Bethlehem in Hebrew actually translates as house of bread. So they're leaving the house of bread during a famine. What you also not know is that Elimelech means God is king. And they essentially are going to Moab, Moab, a people in a place which was generally despised by the Israelites. They are people who worship foreign gods. So you have God is king leading his family to a place where he isn't. And so if you don't understand this, you won't understand why Naomi, in the beginning, her, her, her heart being broken, her challenge was that she felt that God's hand was against her, that she and her family were being cursed and punished for her unfaithfulness. You see her in verse 14, she says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now, she felt that she was punished for her inability to be faithful to God. Add to that, many commentators will actually talk about, though she was very, being very loving to Ruth and Orpah and telling them to go away, she ultimately also felt this crushing uh, a feeling of not being able to meet the obligation of providing a husband for them. Now, even in Hebrew custom, you have this, this, this practice where the, the husband or the, the, the actual next of kin of a deceased husband will come and marry that widow in order to maintain the family name as well as to provide security for the family. And so you have Naomi essentially saying, I'm trying to turn back. It's bad enough for me. I feel the Lord's hand is turned up against me. On top of the fact, I'm not going to feel this crushing weight of not being able to care for you and continually being reminded about how unfaithful I am. And so she says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? What she is literally saying is that I cannot honor this obligation to you. I'd rather you go. Now, you have to understand that this is really noble because she probably would have appreciated the company, right? And ultimately, it actually shows how beautiful it was for Ruth to actually stay because they gave, she gave her a good big picture about how difficult this would be. Um, I have a good friend who was working at a hedge fund, and he got this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to join this other, other big fund. And he did his interview, did all his reconnaissance up front. And then within the first few weeks, 
he realized that everything that those partners told him about the job, they misrepresented their financials. They misrepresented how, what dire straits that company was in. And he was so angry. And I remember us talking over lunch, and he's just sitting there like, he's like, I wish they would have given me the choice to make an informed decision. And they took that from him. And in this case, you actually have Naomi giving Ruth and Orpah the choice. She paints a complete picture, but Ruth makes an informed choice, and that was to stay. In the face of Naomi's desperate plea, she still initiates a pledge with Naomi no matter what. And this is where we witness her covenantal love. Now, last week, uh, we walked through the definition of covenantal love, and it's an opposite of a contract that is uh, a bond made between two or more in view of God's eternal commitment to us that's unconditional and characterized by steadfast love. Now, a contract asks, we said a contract asks for something in return, but a covenant asks for someone in return. And so Ruth initiated a covenant that was binding, no matter what Naomi did. And she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. Ruth is the biblical ride or die when you hear this. Now, the text says right before that in verse 14 that Ruth clings to her, clings to her. Now, there's a reason why Ruth, chapter 114, is one of the most referenced scriptures in wedding vows, <laughs> because ultimately, the same word for cling is dabak, which is the same word used in Genesis 2.24 to describe a husband leaving his home, and going to cling or cleave to his wife. Now, that is the beautiful and accurate picture of what a covenant is. Now, in a time where healthy marriages, even in the church, are rare, we still may be sitting here and wondering, you know, how, does I, how do I really live out and experience the steadfast love of God? Now, in Paul Miller's A Loving Life, he says something. He said, Ruth has said is a determination to do someone good, no matter what, to be faithful to a covenant regardless of its impact on you. It wills to love when every fiber in your body screams, run. This determination to love is at the heart of Jesus' relationship with his Father and at the heart of ours as well. Now think about this. What does this mean for you? There are so many people where you even won one mistake you will be away from church for six months because you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. That you are viewing this as transaction and you are thinking, if I do good, God does good. I don't want to be around the people of God or the place of God if I am not the person of God. But the person of God wants to be around his, the people of God regardless of the condition of the people of God. That is Jesus Christ. That is God. Now what I love about Ruth's ride or die line, where you die, I will die, there I will be buried, is that this is the spirit of the scripture of Paul in Romans 8, when he is giving a picture of God's love, which will not separate us from even death. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is Paul, but that is Ruth. But think about it. Just really think about this. Real love can't just be covenantal. 
It has to be costly. If it costs you nothing, then it's not real love. I could commit and covenant to give you pennies when I'm sitting on billions of dollars. And what we find out next is that the character of love is costly. Now, we all know that the depth of someone's love for someone or something is evidenced by their willingness to sacrifice for it. So if you really love someone or something, you're willing to bear the cost. Now, it was interesting, in my early 20s, I was an investment banker, and there was this guy, you know, you think you're making a little bit of money, and I really wasn't, but I thought I was making some money, and uh, there was a guy, an associate, who was extremely well-dressed, extremely well-dressed, and he had on this blazer, and I'm like, I ain't a hater, man, I'm going to go up to him and big him up and talk to him and just, you know, just see where he got that blazer. So I come up to him, and I'm just like, hey, man, like, you know, that's a nice blazer, man, where'd you get that? Let's call him James. James was like, <laughs> thank you, man, um, you know, this blazer, man, I got it from Bloomies, you know, and I'm like, okay, he's like, yeah, from Bloomies, and uh, I get everything on sale on Bloomies. It's everything on sale. This was on sale too. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to get that blazer. So I turn my Blackberry off. I go uptown and go to Bloomingdale's and I see on the floor, that's the blazer. I'm like, that's the blazer. Perfect. I'm going to get that blazer. Now I'm like new money broke. So new money broke people, what you do is when you find something like the first thing you do is looking for the tag. You know what I'm saying? You're like, okay, let me, let me just confirm this thing. And I couldn't find the tag, but I'm like, he did say it was, it was on sale. So I go up, I put the blazer on, I'm feeling good about the blazer, and I'm in front of mirrors, and an associate comes out. And everybody knows the associates at stores are professional hype people, right? So she comes out, and she's kind of like, you look really good in it. I was like, I do. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I do, man. You know, but then the new money, new money broke comes over me, and I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what's the price of this? And she's just like, she's like, oh, my gosh. Like, you are so lucky that's like the last one we have. Um, it's like on sale and like it's been flying off there. I'm just waiting for her to give me the price. She was like, yeah. So it's on sale for $2,000. It was originally like $3,500. Fam. <laughs> like, you know, like, it was like somebody kicked me in the stomach, you know, but I have to play this off like a G. I'm like, $2,000? Oh, this is great, man. This is perfect. Oh, man. Yo, do you have another one of these blazers like in another color? She's like, yeah, I'm going to check in the back. I'm like, cool. And I like head out. I flee that. I flee like a G. I'm just like, oh, hey, you know, that, that is not... <laughs> That, you know, I realized in that moment just how much I didn't love that blazer. <laughs> when I was, I came in with a, a perception of what the real cost would be. And when they outlined the cost, I realized just how much I didn't love that blazer. But what's funny is that this is literally the picture of Ruth and Orpah, who I thought was Orpah until last year. <laughs> Ruth and Orpah in front of Naomi. It is so, so interesting. So she says, she's like, you know, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I have a husband tonight and then give birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is against me. In short, she's saying, I have nothing to offer you, boo-boo. That's what she's telling Ruth and Orpah. Now, Orpah... Essentially, Orpah looks at this, and she's just like, hmm. Now, what Orpah did, she leaves. What Orpah did actually wasn't unreasonable. It's not like this is a picture of this evil person who's kind of like, you know what? You know, I'm not even here. She's not even loving her. Orpah was loving her mom unconditionally up until that point. She was there. She was crying with her. Even when she first said, hey, leave, she says, we're going to go with you to Bethlehem. Like, she didn't leave. But when the real cost started to settle in, when she realized that you essentially are telling me that my life is over, that I'll have no security, 
And me as a foreigner is going to go into a foreign land and I'll, where I'll be vulnerable and I will not necessarily have any security. She said, that cost is a little bit too high for me. But this is why Ruth's picture, her love, is so beautiful and shining. Because Ruth contrasts and she says and she decides to stay. Like this thing was so remarkable that I forgot that Ruth lost a husband too. You would forget that Ruth is a widow as well, but she still binds to her. And Ruth's resistance boggled Naomi. If you've ever read this in scripture, read what Naomi says. When somebody says, look to you, it's a problem. Naomi was like, look, <laughs> look, you see what your sister-in-law did? You need to go back with her. But Naomi resisted. She pushes back because she represents that God's love is not logical. Christ's love is logical. Christ represents the upside-down economy of love and the kingdom, where the first are last, where the leaders will be servants, where God leaves the 99 to pursue the one. Now, on the way to the cross, Jesus is literally screaming out his steadfast love for us. He's pursuing us, and we are kicking him, and we're spitting him, we are cursing him. But Jesus is still pursuing us, taking on that cost, even in the face of people who are not being loyal and who are hurting him. It would be reasonable if Jesus went real training day. He was just kind of like, is y'all, this how y'all going to do me? I came down here to save y'all. You know what I'm saying? And he left. That would actually be logical. That would be reasonable. But that's not the steadfast love of God. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It does not make sense for even God to come and serve us. But that love was so powerful that it redeemed us. The character of his love is redemptive. Now, to redeem something is to regain or restore something in exchange for a payment. Now, Christ paid a high price to love us. He gave his life, and through that redemptive love, he purchased our salvation. Now, the reality is that this knowledge should motivate us to want to be more like Ruth, to want to picture the image of Christ's love through Ruth. In the kingdom of God, we learn that we are not only the objects of redemption, we are then called to be the agents of redemption. Just think about it this way. In our world right now, if everybody is in self-preservation mode, who cares for the people who can't preserve themselves? After this week where we lose so many figures, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, and how many unnamed image bearers we've lost, if everybody is out to care for themselves, how do we care for the most vulnerable? The orientation of the church and the people of God must be one of agents of redemption that could be broken like Naomi, but see and aspire to the picture of Ruth, who pursues in the midst of her own pain to be steadfast. Now, what I love about Ruth is that she literally lays out the terms of what Naomi could expect from her in a relationship. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Now, we all could relate. So many of the issues that we have in relationships and friendships is because of misaligned expectations. But if we're asking about how do we tangibly and practically respond to this message, my first charge to all of us, including me, is that we are intentional about putting ourselves in relationships of mutual accountability. Mutual accountability, where our closest friends and family explicitly lay out what our expectations of one another in crisis. Now, there's this guy that I developed in my community building work over years ago. It was called the Friendship Worksheet. And at one point, we asked people to intentionally put 
the major relationships in their life, particularly the no questions asked, show up people. That if I ask you, if I tell you that I am feeling, that I'm feeling like I want to take my life, that I'm feeling down, depressed, I am not expecting a text message from you. God who came incarnationally, God with us, Emmanuel, I'm expecting you to be there with me in that evening. And this is all hard for all of us is because we want the benefit of community, but we don't like the burden of community. And the burden is that, yes, everybody care for me in my time of need, but when the weight puts, is placed on you, we run away from it. Lastly, we have to ask ourselves a simple question, who are you clinging to? Who in your life, who in your circle of friends, who, where you're on the verge of cutting them off, they do not add anything to your life. They are not your mood push every time you want to feel happy because all the people who will make you unhappy, you've discarded of and you've kind of swiped through your friendship so you could just use people to feel good. Who can add nothing to your life? I'm asking you to invest in them. I'm asking you to hold on to them. Because the irony of this, I'm not telling you guys not to care for yourself, not to secure your gas mask first, nor am I telling and encouraging you to then become these saviors on horses riding through and being there for everyone. What I am saying is that this is a very interesting question. If God came down to serve us, if the followers of him somehow say they follow a man who came down to serve, it's quite peculiar if everybody in your life are there to serve you. Though we know this is something we must do, I acknowledge in the ways that I've fallen short to be and cling there for my friends, in the ways you've fallen short to be and cling for your friends, that we have one who never fell short to cling to us. And here's the good news. We can hope in a God whose steadfast love for us is unfailing, is unbreakable, it is eternal. And Ruth is modeling Jesus' love letter to all of us. And this is what Jesus is saying. No matter where you go, I'm there. When you could offer me nothing, I pursued you. Becoming human, leaving home, heaven, coming into foreign territory, I clung to you and we became family. Even when you wanted to push me away, even when you failed to cling to other people, I clung to you at the cross. It was not the nails that kept me to that cross. It was my steadfast love for you. I was having breakfast uh, on, on Friday with this uh, great leader, and he said something that shook me all the way through this weekend. And he says, grace is like a river running down the mountain, which flows in pools in the valley. Grace is a river flowing down from the mountain that flows in pools in the valleys. We must meet people in their valleys. Uh, we must remember that if God's hands outstretched at the cross, that those outstretched hands will never fail to reach, never fail to hold, and never fail to redeem you. Now that's steadfast love. That's the steadfast love that he has for me and you. That's the steadfast love that he expects of me and of you for each other. Let us pray. God, I thank you, God, that you are the embodiment of steadfast love. 
that there wasn't a cost too high that you wouldn't bear it to save us, that it is covenantal and not based on our performance, and that ultimately, God, your love is not empty. It is an action. It is redemptive, and you've saved us. Let us, God, walk out in the character of Ruth, who images and points to you and your son, because if it wasn't for Ruth's steadfast love, redemption for her, Naomi, and all of us wouldn't be possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.